today on Against the Grain. Who's ultimately responsible for global warming? Most often, it's cast as a problem that we've all created equally, whether we're rich or poor. In recent years, some attention has been paid to the top 10% of the population, whose high-consumption lifestyles, their large houses, large vehicles, and frequent plane flights generate disproportionately large amounts of carbon emissions. Geographer Matthew Huber counters that while class is central, focusing primarily on consumption lets the key culprits off the hook, the corporations making a profit off of carbon-intensive production. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Year after year, punishing disasters mount up. Fires, floods, hurricanes, all with apparently no end in sight. To discuss the climate emergency and whom we should target in our efforts to fight it, I'm joined by Matthew Huber. He's professor of geography at Syracuse University and author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Matt, I'd like to get your take on the state of things at this point. In 2019, mass protests demanded action on the climate emergency. And in the U.S. last year, we saw the passage of climate legislation. There are those who say, well, it's not perfect, but we've turned a corner. Has a corner been turned or are we still losing the climate battle? I think when you uh, look at the fact that um, last I checked, they, they project 2022 to show once again an increase in emissions. There was a, a brief dip in the, the COVID times, but um, I think we're back on an upward trajectory. And, you know, um, the atmosphere doesn't really uh, care if we <laughs> pass major legislation. If the emissions keep um, going up, uh, yeah, in my calculus, we're still losing the fight. And I think, um, you know, when you look at the scale of um, sort of legislation that was imagined in kind of the 2020 cycle, you know, the the largest being Bernie Sanders' $16 trillion Green New Deal, uh, you know, what we ended up with was a, about a 380 uh, billion Inflation Reduction Act, which is largely a package of tax credits that's meant to basically incentivize consumers and investors to, uh, you know, purchase low-carbon commodities like electric vehicles, but also invest in clean energy production. But ultimately, it's still kind of... Um, you know, there's not a lot of coercion involved toward the fossil fuel industry in, in the Inflation Reduction Act. There's not um, any kind of coherent planning of a decarbonization transition. And it's it, it's essentially just once again sort of hoping that if we put out the right incentives, the market and private consumers and investors will make the right choices and, and shepherd us to uh, a green transition. So while there, I wouldn't deny there ha there's been sort of um, progress. I mean, legislation on climate in the U.S. is progress, <laughs> but uh, but we still have a, a tremendous uh, way to go. Um, you know, as long as emissions continue to rise. This is a central question, of course, in figuring out how to wage the climate fight. The question of where we focus our efforts. In your analysis, who and what is culpable for most carbon emissions? Yeah, that's that's definitely the, the the question of kind of carbon responsibility is is sort of at, at, at central to the book and and particularly trying to make an argument that we should uh, analyze responsibility in class terms um, in terms of the the um, sort of let's for now say the upper class being most responsible. But what I've noticed uh, as I was writing the book is there was already quite a lot of attention on on that problem and it was often framed in, in terms of what was like Oxfam America had a huge report called extreme carbon inequality 
Thomas Piketty has done some analysis of, of the similar dynamics. And what that research and analysis would focus on is rich uh, people with high incomes and their consumption practices linked to what is called a carbon footprint can be seen as the most responsible uh, for emissions. So you would hear stats like the top 10% of the, of the globe are responsible for 50% of emissions. But that whole way of analyzing carbon responsibility sort of focuses narrowly, I would say, on um, consumption and on what rich people do with their money as consumers. And it did not pay any, it does not pay any attention at all to class in the more Marxist sense, which is, you know, classically defined as a relationship to the means of production and, and, and not exactly what you consume, but what you own and how your, your, your ownership of capital um, leads to, um, you know, power over production, over resources in the economy. So I, I try to shift the uh, analysis toward an, towards really making the point that the real people that are to blame for climate change are not so much a bunch of dispersed consumers, but are are concentrated power of owners, capitalists who who own uh, you know obviously fossil fuel uh, companies. But also, there's a whole host of um, you know carbon-intensive forms of production, like chemicals, steel, cements. Uh, uh, estimates show that about 15 to 20 percent of global carbon emissions come from steel and cement alone. So a lot of the emissions are coming um, from production. And um, again, when we look at how rich people consume, we don't really pay much attention to how they make their money in the first place. And again, it's if you can look at a, you know, a fossil fuel executive um, who spends you know, 8 to 12 hours a day sort of organizing a global network of fossil fuel projects all around the world that, that um, are, are linked to you know, millions of tons of emissions, uh, that fossil fuel executive might spend an hour during the day uh, driving a sports utility vehicle or eating a steak and yet all the attention on their carbon culpability is on that stake and SUV and it, and there's almost the their role as owners and investors and profiteers in the economy are sort of erased and the the other point worth pointing out is that even you and me when when we drive a car or we consume energy in our homes and we you know carbon footprint methodology would say we we're just responsible for 100% of those emissions but yet, once again, that erases the role of the capitalist who sold us that fuel for our car or our house. And, and they're the ones actually making the profit off those uh, transactions. They're accumulating that profit into the expansion of their industries. Uh, and, they, and they plow that profit into investments that they're kind of hell-bent on maintaining and profiting from for decades to come, which is, to me, really the the key struggle we face on the climate is you have a, a, a small minority of people who, who own and invest in fossil fuels and, and, and fossil fuel based capitalist production who, who really uh, their, their entire existence depends on, on maintaining those investments, maintaining their control over those production systems so that they can continue to make profits deep into the 21st century. So yeah, that you know, uh, that's just a different way of looking at this, the unequal responsibility when it comes to climate. And we'll return to the question of carbon footprint and consumption and an activist focus on consumption. But let's stay for now with this question of production, which you're saying you wish the struggle around the climate would put front and center. So when we're talking about the capitalist class, and when we're talking about the sectors of the capitalist class that most profit from fossil fuels and carbon intensive production. Who are we talking about? You mentioned those who do the extraction. That's kind of obvious. And then, of course, those who fly beneath the radar in many ways. You, you also just mentioned the production of steel and also cement. Can you tell us about the nitrogen fertilizer industry, which I think most people do not think about at all as they think about those implicated in massive carbon production. 
One of the things I try to do in the book is really zero in, not just on the the companies that extract fossil fuels, which are, as you said, obvious, and the climate movement has already clearly identified them as the enemy. But there's a whole host of what we could call the industrial manufacturing sector that consumes a lot of fossil fuels in their in their production. And actually, when you look at the industrial sector more broadly, it's it's actually not that complicated. The most emissions are coming basically from, like we just said, steel, cement, and 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 the other huge categories, chemicals. And chemicals can include um, a whole host of, of petrochemicals and things that go into medicine and plastics and all the rest. But one I decided to do a lot of research on was the production of uh, nitrogen fertilizer or ammonia, which is an extremely carbon intensive process that uh, uses, it actually, it uses uh, fossil fuels, um, usually natural gas or coal, in the normal way of like combusting it for heat energy, but it also uses it as a material feedstock for a source of hydrogen that it wants to combine with atmospheric nitrogen to create um, this ammonia, which is for chemists out there is, is NH3. So you need this source of hydrogen. Um, and the only way to get it cheaply, at least, is from fossil fuels. And so uh, in the United States, they use tremendous amounts of natural gas. They take the hydrogen from this methane molecules. And that process of extricating this hydrogen creates carbon dioxide as a byproduct of the chemical transformation. It's called process-based emissions. And, and that is actually the, the overwhelming source of their um, emissions. And, and, and consequently, the nitrogen fertilizer industry is responsible for about uh, two, two and a half percent of global emissions. And, um, and again, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really under the radar. I mean, nitrogen fertilizer is most focused on as a horrific source of um, water pollution, uh, particularly coming from the farmers who use the fertilizer and, and kind of use probably too much of it. It runs off into water. It creates eutrophication and dead zones and really horrific um, algae blooms and all the rest of that stuff. Um, never mind that the overuse and waste of fertilizer is quite a boon to the to the, the nitrogen fertilizer industry because it gives them obviously more sales and 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 the more waste the more money for them so but but in terms of climate change um, a lot of attention is also put on the uh, the backs of farmers who who apply this fertilizer it creates nitrous oxide emissions um, but this ignores the tremendous emissions coming from these ammonia factories um, and, and the fact that, um, again, sort of similarly to what I said before, the emissions coming from farmers are not really only the responsibility of those farmers, it's, it's also the, the fertilizer capitalists who, who sell them the fertilizer to begin with, who, whose whole business operation is bent upon expanding the this, this sales in, of fertilizer um, as an accumulation strategy. So this is sort of uh, an industry that kind of cuts across uh, two sort of ecological problems we face. One, kind of the carbon cycle and climate change, but the other, the nitrogen cycle. And, and, and I think it, it's sort of useful to understand how both those problems and those ecological crises are really a product of this form of capital and the capitalist who organized that, that industry to begin with. I'm speaking with Matthew Huber. He teaches geography at Syracuse University. We're discussing climate change as class war, building socialism on a warming planet. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So uh, you're arguing in this book for shifting the focus, as you've been describing already, from consumption to production. And as you noted, and as we will discuss, there is a great deal of focus within the climate movement on individual consumption so that, as you write, um, when someone gets in a car and turns on the engine, they are seen as solely responsible for the emissions that are produced, when in fact there is a whole production system that profits off of their use of that gasoline and that automobile and so on. Yet the dominant way of uh, thinking about climate responsibility has often been tied up with this notion of one's carbon footprint and accounting for that. 
Where does the idea of carbon footprint accounting come from and how has it been popularized? That's uh, an interesting story and, and not that surprising. Uh, the, the very idea of a personal carbon footprint was invented by the very industries that profit off fossil fuels <laughs> in the first place, particularly British Petroleum in 2004, um, basically invented this, this method for, for individuals to, you know, input their consumption practices into a calculator and find out how many uh, pounds of emissions they're responsible for. It was part of, if you remember, um, almost 20 years ago, it was part of their infamous Beyond Petroleum campaign, which um, we're still waiting for British Petroleum to get Beyond Petroleum. They, you know, along the way, they've they spilled, you know, so many billions of barrels into the Gulf of Mexico. I should, you know, to be fair, point out that this idea of a footprint um, has deeper roots in actual ecological scholarship. There's a whole long legacy, particularly in the 1990s, of kind of calculating individuals' ecological footprint in terms of like how much sort of territory or space uh, consumption is required to, for its provision. But British Petroleum kind of took the idea of a, a footprint and ran with it. And, and, and it allows for what I would, as you said, sort of a, an extremely um, individualized uh, vision of our responsibility for climate change. It, it creates the sense that really responsibility for climate change is dispersed amongst millions of, of, of different individual behaviors. And, and, and therefore, what we need to do is sort of this, uh, the, to, to sort of solve climate change, it's this kind of moral project to convert the, the lifestyles of millions of dispersed uh, consumers. And you can understand why British Petroleum appreciates this, this concept and this narrative, because it takes a lot of the attention off them as culpable and also as the as the actors that we need to fundamentally disempower and some would even say, you know, um, expropriate to, to be able to, to solve climate change. But one other really interesting thing about the carbon footprint ideology is that it really mirrors a theory in, um, of kind of consumer sovereignty that has its roots in like, you know, neoclassical economics and neoliberal ideology that, um, really imagines the economy itself as being driven by the choices of millions of dispersed decentralized consumers and it's the it's the demand of those consumers that are really driving production and 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 ultimately you know like the sort of neoliberal ideology that you know fossil fuel producers they wouldn't produce it if there wasn't demand for it and so that's really stands in contrast to again, a, a more Marxist understanding of the economy that doesn't see the power in the hands of dispersed consumers. It sees power in the hands, concentrated in the hands of, you know, corporations and the capitalists who control uh, the system. And I think um, when, we, when we really think about it, we have to ask ourselves if, uh, if we're really the ones that are driving climate change, how come we actually have no power <laughs> and no choice and no democratic input into how our energy system works into how our electrical grid works. It's really actually not it's not distributed, dispersed uh, masses that have power over those systems. It's very small minorities of, of owners who who decide how our energy system is organized. And and it's sort of a classical you know Marxist analysis of the few who have control and the many who don't. And and therefore this carbon footprint ideology really sort of obscures that basic fact about power in the capitalist economy. Well, let's turn to the climate movement and who makes it up. Like much of the left, it must be said, the climate movement is dominated by people from the professional class, such as academics, such as journalists, such as people who work for nonprofits, and so on. Some would characterize the professional class, also called the professional managerial class, as an elite part of the working class, while others would characterize it as a class unto itself. How would you define this group, and why do you think it's a problem that they are, or maybe we should say we are, the dominant force in climate politics? I gotta admit, I, I proposed this book way back in 2017 with this sort of three-part structure of the capitalist class, professional class, and 
working class, the more I the more I read and sort of waded into Marxist debates about class and what constitutes, you have to admit that um, in, in the broadest definition of the working class, people that rely on a wage to survive, I mean, that's very much inclusive of what I call the professional class or what Barbara and John Eric, Aaron Reich called the professional managerial class. And in many ways, like you said, we, we could be talking about sort of stratums or divisions within the broader working class. Um, but I do define, I try to sort of define this, this, this layer, if you will, um, in kind of materialist terms. Um, I, I define the professional class as a class that sort of marshals credentials in the labor market to carve out advantages. Um, and, and, and I try to highlight that this class has really expanded dramatically. Um, you know, in the post-World War II era, with the rise of an explosion, really, of higher education as becoming this sort of wedge in the labor market, and you could also say in the working class. But then, you know, accelerating in the, the neoliberal period uh, beyond the 1970s, where you have an increasingly kind of very barbaric and unequal form of capitalism, and you have this sort of highly educated professional class trying to kind of cling to some kind of economic uh, middle class existence in the context of, of that process. Um, but, but during that period too, you know, you have the rise of um, what some would call the post-industrial knowledge economy, and given the role of education and, and so forth, this class tends to work in that kind of realm that Marxists would call uh, mental labor as opposed to manual labor. And um, it really, uh, uh, I think now it's becoming clear that this kind of wedge between the, the sort of the educated and the non-educated working class, if you will, has become politically extremely significant, not just in the United States, but all across particularly Europe. You know, again, Thomas Piketty is analyze this process as a sort of educational polarization where the the parties that the political parties that used to be parties of the working class like the you could say the democrats in the united states or center left parties in europe have seen their bases shift towards this highly of uh, more affluent educated voters suburban voters um, uh, knowledge workers professionals whereas the the working classes even in the traditional industrial working classes that are still left um, a lot of these working class voters have shifted to the right in really alarming ways so if you're a socialist and you want a really unified and mass working class movement um, you have to recognize that this division um, is really important. But when it comes to climate politics, and you could say left politics in general, the concentration of the movement and of organizing spaces among these highly educated, professionalized people working in academia, um, you know, when you look around who's really driving climate politics, it's journalists, it's scientists, it's academics, it's nonprofit managers and staffers. And, and, and what I try to argue is that this class kind of has its own kind of narrow way of looking at the world um, that, that limits its ability to kind of really create a kind of mass climate politics that would really appeal to the larger working class. And, and even in the United States, for all the expansion of higher education, still the case that like 63% of adults do not have a college degree. So if you really want to build a majoritarian working class um, uh, climate politics, the concentration of, of climate advocacy among these educated professionals is is possibly a, a real limit to that. And I, I try to argue that, you know, the ways in which these professionals sort of focus on science and making climate politics all about believing or denying the science um, is, is precisely sort of a, a form of politics that appeals <laughs> to highly educated, you know, people that participated perhaps in the March for Science during the Trump years when everyone was sort of worried on the war on facts and post-truth. But, you know, I think most um, ordinary working people, um, they probably recognize that the science of climate change, they recognize something's wrong, but it's not exactly an immediate sort of material concern. I also focus on professionals tend to get really interested in very technocratic types of policies like carbon pricing and um, 
cap and trade uh, and other kind of very complicated policy fixes that are really appealing to smart <laughs> technocratic policy experts, uh, but uh, very much um, not have like almost no capacity to kind of speak to and create a, a mass popular climate politics. And in fact, it, it's probably clear it does quite the opposite. So you have a lot of professional technocrats in the in the early in the aughts and 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 say the Obama years advocating for carbon pricing, and 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 essentially, um, you know, with all the caveats about how that would be implemented, essentially what they're arguing for is uh, implementing a carbon pricing that raises the cost of energy, and so it, it actually was a gift to the anti-climate right, which would would say like look at these these liberals that want to make your life cost more and 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 of, and of course we saw in france the attempt to put through a carbon tax led to this kind of working class revolt in the yellow vest movement it just sort of if anyone uses class politics in the climate fight it was the right who's always citing like climate policies are gonna you know are gonna hurt jobs they're gonna hurt your you know they raise the cost of energy and all this sort of stuff and, and the other thing is even um, what I found is the more radical parts of the climate movement, what I call sort of anti-system radicals, are often also coming from this kind of professional class, ed highly educated context. And I argue that that very process of sort of learning about the, the climate crisis, the ecological crisis, leads to a kind of radicalization. But because this class is so separated from material production and so... Um, separated from this kind of history of socialist working class politics, this the anti-system radicalism too kind of focuses a lot on consumption and how we need to reduce overconsumption and and completely ignores production and often advocates what I what I call in the book a politics of less, which really focuses a lot on degrowth or a, a reduction of material throughput or energy use, which once again I think when you when you look at the broader masses of struggling working people under this barbaric neoliberalism, you know, who have been suffering through austerity and um, have been trying to live better with less for many decades, it's, it's, it's hard to understand how this kind of politics really could appeal to the broader masses, even though it's extremely appealing to, again, these highly professional educated folks. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'm speaking with Matthew Huber. He's professor of geography at Syracuse University, author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. So you argue, Matt, and you just you were talking about how the politics of the professional class spill over in both kind of more liberal progressive and more radical forms, those people who focus on climate justice or system change can often fall into a kind of politics of austerity. Climate justice is often a term that seems to straddle concerns around economics or class on some level with those of environment and climate. Tell us why you think that a lot of the politics that's geared around this notion of climate justice is still too limited. Yeah, um, one, one thing you could say is that, it, again, like in the middle of the 20th century, like, you know, it was very clear there were mass socialist labor movements that had a lot of power. And um, in, in many ways, that power was kind of pacified through the kind of New Deal period and the post-war era. But, uh, you know, the politics of, of mass working class power was sort of um, taken for granted. Um, uh, I would say starting in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there, there has been a shift towards this more, this kind of politics of justice, of, of, of sort of uh, unfair distributional uh, problems as opposed to kind of class conflict and class analysis just in general um, but climate justice you know does sort of always focus on this sort of unfair distribution of harms 
that come from, from climate change. And so the classic definition of climate justice is that those least responsible for um, the crisis itself, particularly poor people in the global south, are bearing the worst effects of climate change. And that that in itself is sort of an unfair distribution of, of, of climate harms. And um, this way of thinking sort of does elevate the role of what are often referred to as kind of uh, frontline communities who are, again, hit worst and first by climate change, like indigenous people who, who rely on, you know, the land and surviving through particular types of subsistence practices that are being threatened by a drought, by um, extreme weather, um, and, and so forth. And basically, what I again argue is that this type of, of thinking actually highlights really important you know, inequalities of, of the climate crisis and obviously things we need to, to worry about um, in terms of the most marginalized types of communities. Um, but it's again quite hard to imagine how a mass um, movement can emerge from this kind of conception of the frontline communities are the most marginalized or most oppressed. I mean, for one thing, these because these communities are so oppressed and so marginalized, it's hard to put all the onus on them <laughs> to build this sort of mass uh, movement capable of taking on fossil capital. Um, but also, what what I try to argue is that for most people under capitalism, the biggest threat to their survival is actually not climate change or extreme weather or drought. It's, it's, it's actually the, the fact that most working class people are torn from the environment entirely and torn from any direct uh, relationship with land or with ecological systems and therefore, you know, rely on the market to survive. And it's that market dependence that really creates really what I, what I argue is ecological forms of insecurity and, 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 and um, sort of stress and anxiety around survival that, that, that really uh, the masses of working class people and, uh, under capitalism, that's really their, their main threat to survival. So if, if we do want to build a kind of, again, mass working class climate movement, um, we, have to, uh, we have to learn how to appeal not just to the the people hurt by climate change, but also the masses who uh, who are somewhat alienated from the ecological conditions of life, and 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 main the main threat to survival is in fact capitalism, is in fact the the market itself, and so we have to kind of come up with a way of linking uh, solutions to climate change to those sort of insecurities, economic insecurities that are basic to capitalism itself. Well, let's talk more about that, because of course who can make the change is, is central to what you're arguing here. And you're saying that it's been problematic, that it has been, let's just say that elite portion of the working class that is professional has been the driving force of the climate movement and of the left more broadly, because aside from not being a very large group, they don't have a sort of strategic positioning or the same kind of strategic positioning as the rest of the working class. Yet you noted earlier that in la the last few decades, there has been a, a shift in which the traditional center-left parties have been dominated by people coming from that kind of professional strata and that the rest of the working class has moved rightward. So listeners might think, well, why why should we hope that the working class can drive the struggle given that, you know, as some would argue, they've been effectively duped by right-wing politicians and the fossil fuel industry, and, and this is not the central focus of their lives, so why would they want to organize around this question? Yeah, great question. Um... It's almost some, sometimes like a naive argument I'm making that, that is really a democratic argument that whether we like it or not, this, this working class, and particularly, like I said before, the non-college educated working class is the, the vast majority of society. So 
if you want to win politically, um, it's hard to imagine how you're going to win unless you're able to appeal to this larger mass of people. And and it's true, I think, that that mass is, is, is in many ways sort of divided uh, between these kind of right-wing, um, increasingly nationalist types of um, politics and um, traditional kind of, uh, again, sort of center-left parties. But ultimately, I think, um, one of the reasons the 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 many working class people are going to the right is not only um, are these center left parties like explicitly selling out working class people by you know doing things like uh, the Clinton uh, years passing NAFTA passing welfare reform deregulating Wall Street um, you you not only have these center left parties um, attacking the working class directly but it, it's very clear that neither. Um, party or neither side of the political spectrum is offering really anything economic to these masses of, of people. And that's sort of been characteristic of the neoliberal period is that capital has gotten w way better organized and has sort of completely um, colonized the political process to their own benefit. And so basically you have an economy where the top 10% are doing well and the rest are, are not. And so I think it's very logical and rational for the working class to look at the political uh, process and, and, and say, neither of these sides are doing anything for me materially, economically. And actually, I was recently reading an article in Jacobin that interviews Thomas Piketty and others who have looked at um, this, this issue of educational polarization. And they point out that, like, actually, you know, um, working class party uh, has been successful in the last 20 years. And uh, it's the, the PT in, in Brazil and Lula's Workers' Party, where, where actually when Lula was in power, and, and thank God he's in power again, when he was in power in the, in the aughts, you know, they actually implemented massive economic redistribution of resources and money to poor people, to working class people. And lo and behold... The, the, the workers and the sort of precarious masses of people, uh, you know, supported that party. But again, uh, it's very clear that neither, neither party, um, neither side of the political spectrum is offering much economically. So uh, with, with that prelude in mind, just one of the core arguments I make is, in the book is that actually when you look at climate crisis and what we need to do, it's very clear to me that the very sectors that we need to aggressively decarbonize and rapidly transform are things like energy, things like food and agriculture, things like housing and transportation. These are at the core basic working class needs and things working class people have real insecure access in, in, in obtaining in this, in this in, especially now with inflation, this really uh, this this very brutal economy. So if we could f find a way to build a climate politics and a climate program that's about offering people better, secure, even socialists would dream of decommodified access to these basic needs um, like energy. Um, there are movements that call for electricity as a human right, um, housing as a human right. Um, of course, we've heard about healthcare as a human right. These kind of movements to to actually give guaranteed universal access to these basic needs could, theoretically at least, be paired with decarbonizing those sectors and restructuring them uh, in this sort of, in, as, a, as an answer to this, you know, uh, climate emergency that we're in. Um, but we need to go away from the sort of, again, the liberal sort of policy wonk view that, like, we're not going to decarbonize unless we sort of make everything cost more, internalize the externalities, make the get the prices right, and and that kind of way of thinking has no capacity to to win over this larger mass of working class people. Matthew Huber, what do you think of the trajectory, let's say, of the idea of the Green New Deal, something that attempted to bring economics and the climate under the same umbrella to make green jobs? to tackle the climate crisis, those politicians who had championed the Green New Deal, most of them have not fared so well politically. <laughs> when, when the Green New Deal kind of exploded onto the scene, when um, AOC and the Sunrise Movement sat in on Nancy Pelosi's office in, in 2018, I thought it was a real breakthrough because you finally had 
the articulation of a climate politics that was about actually seeing the climate crisis as linked to another crisis of, of rampant inequality and capitalism. And, and, you know, AOC and Ed Markey, they, they released this non-binding resolution that had, you know, uh, aggressive decarbonization paired with all these economic improvements to people's lives, like a job guarantee, like Medicare for all. And, and so to me, it was exactly on the right track, um, at least sort of thematically and rhetorically. But of course, the, the real challenge is that the, the theory of change is that you actually have to deliver these material benefits to the masses for them to actually start supporting or getting on board with this kind of large movement. And the idea is if you could start to deliver these benefits, then you'd start to stitch together this kind of popular majority behind a Green New Deal. And, you know, I think there was a lot of hope that, you know, essentially the Green New Deal was kind of like a policy idea that was meant to kind of become a wedge in the 2020 presidential campaign. And you, you, you did see like certain candidates, particularly Bernie Sanders, kind of became um, the Green New Deal candidate. But of course, he lost. <laughs> and what's come since, again, has not been anything like this Green New Deal vision that that, again, is trying to really pair climate action with material benefits to the working class. Um, there's some hope that um, the Inflation Reduction Act will lead to a bunch of jobs, and there's some sort of like prevailing wage provisions in there that might benefit workers. But I don't think it's like on the scale of the, the original New Deal where you had, you know, huge, massive public investment into infrastructure that was needed, including electricity infrastructure. You had massive legislative changes to labor law that allowed unions to form and, 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 and huge benefits to working class people all across the country. Um, it's clear that that's not going to be the case. So unfortunately, I think Green New Deal uh, visionaries and advocates uh, could have learned from the original New Deal that it actually didn't just come from the enlightened uh, hand of Franklin Roosevelt that sort of granted all these benefits to the working class from up high, that it was actually a massive working class insurgency, you could say, in the 1930s, a kind of strike wave that really exploded in 1934. And, and it was that kind of uh, working class organization that, that um, really made the New Deal possible and won the New Deal from below. And so, unfortunately, we live in a period of where the working class, in an organized way, has been, you know, hugely crushed since the 1980s. And so we have a very disempowered working class movement. And I think there was some hope that, you know, like Bernie Sanders, AOC, these political figures could kind of like resurrect a working class politics from, from, from through electoralism, <laughs> but that's not typically how it works. You have to kind of build the organization and unions and, and, and political things like political parties that actually are entrenched in communities, entrenched in people's everyday lives, where, where they start to see that if they join this union or they join this movement, they're going to see immediate material benefits. And that's the kind of organization that can really build power of the working class that could actually win something like a Green New Deal um, down the road. But I think that's pretty much off the table right now. Well, what would that kind of broader working class politics and organizing look like? Tell us about the role of trade unions as you would imagine it. Obviously, there are a lot of trade unions that have not been committed to left-wing politics generally. And then um, also, can you talk about the centrality as you see it of electricity as a strategic sector to be targeted the green new deal and this sort of idea of 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 kind of universal benefits that's a sort of strategy that will impact all working class people no matter where they work <laughs> um, but we also need a much more targeted uh, sort of if we're going to do a working class climate strategy it has to be targeted to the labor movement. It has to have sort of a focus on particular unions and so forth. Now, I think um, it's very clear that there's certain sort of unions, what I would call low carbon unions, like teachers unions, uh, nurses unions, and other kind of, um, again, low carbon sectors that are going to be natural allies to uh, a climate movement. In fact, like 
teachers and nurses unions were some of the first to endorse a Green New Deal when it kind of came out. But I think, again, one of the goals of the book is to really remind us all that this struggle is really really about the belly of, of the beast. It's about in industry. It's about industrial production. It's about how we organize really material, productive um, infrastructure. And so to act as if, if we're socialists, to act as if we can dramatically transform in industrial systems without those workers and that do the work in those systems, I think is pretty naive. So what I argue in the book is that, you know, the working class movement, the labor movement has known uh, that to build power, it actually makes sense to think strategically about certain sectors to organize in. The labor organizer Jane McAlevey has shown that basically that, that again, that sort of working class upsurge of the 1930s, they really, you know, they were actually communist organizers who really said, we have to focus on uh, the automobile sector, the steel sector, the coal sector to build union power in these sort of choke points of the, of the economy at that time. And she has suggested today uh, there's real strategic value in organizing in education and healthcare, logistics, things like Amazon that's happening now. But I argue that if we're worried about climate, we really should think strategically too. And, and when it comes to climate change, it's very clear that decarbonization basically goes through the electricity sector. What we have to do is clean up electricity uh, to make it zero carbon and then electrify all the things in our economy that don't currently run on electricity. There's a few things that we can't electrify, but a lot of it, like residential heating, transportation, we can shift over to electricity. And so what I point out is that the electricity sector is already actually one of the more unionized sectors of our economy. It has high levels of union density, um, about 25% in the United States, which is which is high for us. <laughs> and, and that, so therefore there's already sort of this organized infrastructure there that can be channeled into a kind of climate types of politics because it's it seems clear to me that we have a, a pretty powerful I think climate activists even have a powerful pitch to make these electricity unions which is that if you look at what's happening in electricity you you can actually see that the renewable energy economy is actually owned by Wall Street. It's extremely non-union or even anti-union. It's, it's a form of production, actually, that is quite dispersed and, and transient forms of work that are hard to organize. And in fact, a lot of renewable energy projects don't actually lead to any very few sort of permanent jobs. And so there's a very easy way we could see a kind of transition to renewable energy, which would be about de-unionizing the electric sector. So if these unions really care about their their survival, they have to organize on the green transition to make sure it is a union transition. As much as Joe Biden talks about, you know, climate change means good union jobs, like there's no, if there's no sort of legal mandate to, to force um, the, the energy transition to be one driven by unions, then it's not clear to me that's actually going to be the case. And so, um, and, and so just, I mean, but also just from a broader perspective, like if you're a climate campaigner, if you're a climate activist, uh, you really should think about how can we get these workers in the electric sector uh, at the table, really driving campaigns, driving demands. And we've seen actually that the climate campaigners that do this have huge success because unions, as much as as much as they've been attacked over the last several decades, they're they're basically still one of the most powerful organized parts of the left that are left. And so in in Maine, actually, unions drove the passing of a Green New Deal at the state legislative level. In Illinois, a climate jobs legislation was basically driven through by unions and organizing with unions. So uh, it's very clear to me that that um, the climate movement really has to put these industrial unions at the center. And, you know, a lot of them are conservative, as you said. A lot of them are hostile to decarbonization. But we, we can't just take that fact and say, well, we can't work with them. They're bad. They're, they're you know, they're sort of bad people. We, we have to try to meet them where they're at. We have to try to get them on board with a kind of climate program. And it's not going to be easy, but it's 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 at least um, you know a narrow sort of sectoral focus that we could really put a lot of energy into. 
In the time that we have left, I want to ask you something about something that may seem very utopian, which is in imagining how these questions might play out in a post-capitalist world. If, if the struggle is not simply to slow climate change uh, and transform the economy into something more renewable, but actually to get beyond capitalism, what we lack really is control over the metabolism we have with the natural world. You know, like I said before, that is firmly in the control of capital right now, who, who organizes that metabolism for their own profit. I mean, to me, um, what the sort of basic point of, of Marxism was that it actually is this process that tears the vast majority from the land, from the earth, proletarianizes them and throws them into this sort of mass working class, but then creates this class that's sort of torn from any kind of local uh, 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 f fixed sort of relation to become the what you know he, he socialists would call the last class that has the potential to kind of liberate humanity um, from class itself, and. And, um, and that is a global uh, vision, right, of, of, of international workers sort of um, rising up. And Marx really thought about this in, you know, in, in ecological terms that, like, you know, the movement would liberate humanity and also organize the metabolism between us and nature on a global level as sort of a, a species level, if you will. And, and um, for Marx, that, that really, to liberate us as humanity, which is, you know, he, that was his vision, uh, we really do need to kind of take control over, over like, what humanity needs, right? Um, I, I, I draw on a statistics in the book which shows that about 3.3 billion people on the planet consume less energy or electricity than your refrigerator. <laughs> so there's this incredible scarcity and poverty around the world and the socialist movement was always about that this scarcity given capitalist technology is, is, is not, uh, it's totally avoidable. And I think uh, we are facing serious ecological problems, but the, the, the cause of those problems is the organization of our economy and in the name of profit. And what we need to do is take control over that economy and, and, and again the metabolism with nature and organizing it in a more sustainable way in a way that could could actually benefit the larger masses and, and yes like give people abundant time <laughs> give people uh, enough um, electricity enough food enough housing to survive uh, and have a decent life. Matthew Huber thank you so much. Thanks a lot it's great to be on the show. Matthew Huber is author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Verso is the publisher of that book. You can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. He's also the author of Lifeblood, about which we spoke with him a few years ago. And he's professor of geography at Syracuse University. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time.